It's been great to be with you four weeks, and uh, this is my last Sunday. My wife was not able to come with me. She was sort of under the weather this week, and so she said, uh, can you give me a bye? So I just got up at, and left at 6.30 in Charlotte, so it's great to be with you on this Lord's Day. Uh, the reason I chose First Peter, it's a book about hope, but it's hope in the midst of suffering. And I don't know about you, but uh, my life doesn't have a whole lot of place for suffering. You know, we as Christians, uh, I think, in the United States, you know, we didn't deal with World War I, World War II. That's why probably 9-11 was such a shock. You know, 300 folks died in one day, boom, just like that, on our land. So the question I'm just sort of asking today, do you have an adequate view of suffering? And we just sang, lead me to the cross. And certainly as we preach the word, as we look from Genesis to, to, to Revelation, as we look at the scripture, it leads us to the cross, which is about suffering and the very essence of the gospel. So I encourage you to finish reading uh, chapters 3, 4, and 5. But if you, if, you know, and if, if you have your Bible open there, chapter 4, verse 12 and 13, uh, and this was written... While Nero was the emperor in Rome, he, he was using Christians uh, covered with tar to illuminate his gardens. I mean, this is how wretched uh, and how evil Nero was. But listen to chapter 4, verse 12. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. So we, we don't know, but perhaps while he's writing this letter inspired by the Holy Spirit that he gets this word that, that maybe a new and more intense persecution had just broken out against the Christians in Rome. And so he says, don't be surprised. And if you're like me, we tend to be surprised. So the question is, can we be prepared for suffering? And so I want to particularly focus on verses 17 through 25, um, but we will read uh, verses 13 through 25. But let me give you a brief introduction to that. Way back in 1975, the BBC produced a sitcom that my wife Jane and I enjoyed watching. And the reason we liked watching it was, where in the world on TV do you find a good marriage? I mean, it just doesn't happen. Uh, and the program that we watched was on, uh, it was called The Good Life, or as it came in the PBS, it was called Good Neighbors. Tom and Barbara Good had an incredible marriage. I mean, if, if, I don't know whether you can even still watch it. I suspect you can find it somewhere online. But it's a contrast between the Goods, who have this incredible good marriage, and another couple that were next-door neighbors. Uh, and on the 40th anniversary, of, or 40th birthday, Tom Good gives up his job as a draftsman in JJM. It was a company that made plastic toys. Uh, you know, that you put in cereal boxes. It may, may, almost makes you think of, you know, 
you know, we used to have the jack boxes, you know, try to get something out of that. Well, he did not like his job. He thought it was meaningless. He thought it was uh, a conspicuous consumption and so forth. So their mortgage was paid off. And so what he desires to do, Tom and Barbara, they make this choice to become self-sufficient and embrace the simple life. I mean, we, we would probably say this is going off the grid. That's in 2021st. Uh, terminology. So, so listen to them. Their good life involves such things as they count, convert their front and their backyard to a garden and they have fruit trees. But they also bring chickens and pigs. I mean, uh, pinky and perky. And they also bring in a goat, Geraldine. I mean, it's, it's a satire, yes. And, and they generate their own electricity using methane, the manure from the animals that they had. And they even attempt to make their own clothing. And they sell surplus crops to barter services for the essentials that they cannot, um, they couldn't buy, make themselves or buy. So the good life is self-sufficiency being off the grid. And certainly there are some folks here in the United States who would see that as well. But the goods lifestyle absolutely horrifies their good neighbors who live next to them, Jerry and Margot Ledbetter. And the interesting thing is that they both, both of the guys work for JJM. But you see, Jerry has chosen to go up the corporate ladder. And through cunning and not necessarily work or brilliance, he just has made it so that he is in reach of being a managing director. But the amazing thing is that despite these conflicting views of what the good life is, they are good friends and they are good neighbors, uh, even though there's some tensions from time to time. See, all of us have an image of what the good life is. And for most Americans, the good life, and I'm speaking for myself, does not include suffering. Even professing Christians don't have a place for it. Uh, for most Christians, the good life uh, is simply our personal comfort, getting life as we really want it, just simply served as we would like it to be. And that's why Helmut Tillicka, who was a German theologian uh, traveling in the United States after World War II, after they had experienced great devastation there in Europe and particularly in Germany, he said this, he said, Americans have an, an adequate view of suffering and this is even more so today. I mean, think when we uh, watch TV or read uh, uh, news on the internet as we see what's happening in the Ukraine and, and there are Christians there that are suddenly have no place to be. I mean, when you see the devastation, and this is a sinful, broken world, and so you and I, in the comfort of this wonderful country, we just don't have any sense of this. Why? Because we haven't suffered a war on American soil. We have not suffered a lack of food or clothing or shelter, uh, or even often for many of us even jobs. I mean, the job market is so good, you know, there's two million jobs out there and there's only one million people looking for a job, so you can just simply move on. 
We have been so blessed that we think that we're entitled to a a pain-free life. And so we've mistakenly concluded, and listen closely, that heaven has come to earth. And yet we would say, if we're thinking in our Christian mindset, that the best is yet to come. So we embrace the false hope and idol of, and some of you probably can't remember this because I'm an old man, uh, but the old Milwaukee commercial says it doesn't get any better than this. And the bottom line is, it does get a whole lot better than this if you've read the book of Revelation chapter 20 and 21. But many of us think that the good life has actually come now. And so I just simply ask you, are you pursuing a false hope, an idol that has taken the place of the Lord Jesus Christ? Listen to this reading of God's Word as we begin uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, When you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Scripture. We thank You that the intent of all Scripture is to lead us to Christ and to lead us to the cross. And Father, we find that uh, part of our rescue at the very center was the suffering of the Lord Jesus. He who knew no sin, who became sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So Father, we pray not only for myself, but for all of us, that you would prepare us with Scripture and whatever kind of suffering you may bring into our life for our good 
that we might receive it and look to the God who is faithful and who would preserve and protect us. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Peter addresses, and, and I'm not going to particularly work with verses 13 through uh, 6, 17, but I'm going to begin at verse 18. And Peter addresses the recipients of this letter as servants or slaves. Notice what he says there. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to, to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now these verses, very candidly, have been used unjustly and twisted to justify slavery. And that is to misunderstand Roman slavery. In the first century, Roman slavery was not based on one's ethnicity or one's background. It was a status. In fact, one-third of the people in Rome were slaves, particularly in urban centers. And so this was their work status. I mean, if you will, Monday through Friday, they were slaves in the Roman status. So Roman slaves were encouraged to be educated, I mean, many slaves were more educated than their masters were. And slaves were the professionals in that era. Also, it was not a permanent status. Some people would even seek to become a slave so that they might gain Roman citizenship. It was a voluntary path for some of them. And many, by the age of 30, were able to gain their own freedom. So, so what is Paul envisioning here? He's envisioning a work situation that many of us experience. I mean, sometimes we may have the power uh, to please our supervisor or our manager, and uh, sometimes we may not. I mean, and, you know, you may uh, please them sometimes, uh, but you may not please them all the time. I mean, that's just the challenge of working with people today. In fact, here the word masters, or what I would like to suggest today, you might say employers are described as being unjust or harsh. It, the, the work that's used there is for someone that has a twisted backbone. I mean, almost curvature of the spine. They are twisted. And so they're harsh. See, this is not the good life, is it? And yet, it is often the way life is in a sinful, broken world. I am sure that there's someone here that has a difficulty or a challenge with someone that's a supervisor or who's an employer. This would be an abnormal gathering of God's people if that is the way. But Americans have an inadequate view of suffering. Suffering can be something economic. It can be being treated unjustly. People that should be employed or should be promoted are not being promoted. It can have... It can do with illness. I mean, all sorts of different venues of suffering can come into our lives in this sinful, broken world. So let me suggest you several ways that Americans have an inadequate view of suffering. First of all is denial. Uh, this perhaps has mainly been codified by Christian science, where someone who said that, you know, that a, a, a dear person who, doesn't re, who has rejected Christ uh, would say that 
when they're in hell, they say, I'm not here and it's not hot. That is just simply denial. That's a reality. This approach does not help us out because suffering is real. If you are in this world, you experience unjust things that happen to you. So the first world is just simply denial. The second one is determinism. Uh, I'm going to simply grin and bear it. It's sort of the, 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 the philosophers, the Stoics, used to take this kind of a, a approach. It's the belief that events are complo- controlled by blind faith, not by a personal God. And so we, again, would not take that view as well. So you have denial and determinism. And then the third thing is diversion. Now, I think we've all probably toyed with this at different times. I'm going to escape suffering. And so we do pleasure, drugs, vacation, or even just we're just so busy that we somehow will forget or we don't have to deal with the realities that are in our life or are in our community, the people around us. And when the pleasures wear off, what do we find out? I mean, the reality of sin and suffering in a broken world comes back crashing into our world. And so we have denial, determinism, diversion, and then finally despair. I mean, who cares? I mean, it's what we have in the book of Ecclesiastes, the idea that maybe life may be meaningless, and so death is to be preferred to life. And so what do we find now? Is that, I mean, in the last couple years, uh, suicide has, been, has escalated in terms that just, I mean, people view that as an easy way out, and certainly that is to make a grave miscalculation. It's to forget that there's a second death, and that brings the reality back to us. So I just simply ask us, have we embraced any of these inadequate views of suffering? And perhaps we have. About 66 years ago, there was a great earthquake in Alaska, and so Dr. Harold Beck, an Old Testament professor at Boston University, was asked by his student, what would you say on the morning after that great earthquake if you were a pastor in Anchorage, Alaska? It's a great question. And he replied, I would hope that words would not be necessary, that I would not have to say anything. If I was their pastor, I hoped that I had prepared them before the earthquake. And see, this is what Peter was trying to do as he writes this epistle to the exiles uh, who might experience suffering in the midst of Nero. John 16.33, Jesus Himself prepares the disciples as He's giving His last testament to them in the upper room. He says, in the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And so He tells them that this is coming because we're in a sinful, broken world. So how then? Should we respond to suffering? Let me suggest two things. First of all, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. We see that in verses 21 through 24. Verse 21 is a dramatic shift in Peter's tone. Notice verse 21. It says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Isn't this amazing? That says, To this you have been called. 
If you name the name of Christ, if you're a Christ follower, to this you have been called, is what the text says. Since Nero is the Roman emperor, some wonder if Peter maybe just received some news um, that there was some kind of new persecution that was taking place in Rome. For that credit, uh, notice verse 20, for what credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it and you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For, and then for to this you have been called. So Jesus' cross is the context of our suffering. See, Jesus suffered for us and therefore we ought to be willing to suffer for him and for his name's sake. So what do we see when we look at Jesus' life? First of all, we see sinless suffering. Verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. This is amazing. I mean, he lived 33 years. He never sinned. And this quotes Isaiah 53, 9, where Jesus was assigned a grave with the wicked, even though he had done no violence and no deceitful word was in his mouth. In the midst, can you imagine this? In the midst of a broken world where people sin against you, where things are not fair, I mean, it... it this is just beyond comprehension, but Jesus was without sin. And so therefore, if anyone deserved not to suffer, it was the Lord Jesus who had done no wrong, and this gives us grace when we suffer occasionally when we do no wrong. And occasionally, that really does happen in your life and mine. So sinless suffering. We see that in Jesus' life. But secondly, in verse 23, we see submissive suffering. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. God the Son had the right to be justly angry when he was treated as he was. And yet he gave up the right. And we're very much in a culture that everyone asserts their own right. But you see, Jesus gives up His right and He entrusts Himself to the Father who He knows is just. He does not retaliate. I mean, that is amazing. See, religious leaders, government officials, soldiers, the crowd insulted Him. He was a quiet. He was quiet. He did not threaten Instead, he entrusted himself to the Father who judges justly. See, this is being, this is the real source of freedom, isn't it? Not wondering what people say around us, not thinking about even being concerned about what I think myself, but only being conscious of what God says. There is no greater people. Uh, no greater freedom. People-pleasing is a dead end because, you know, some people you can please all the time, but all the people you can't please all the time. So why not live for the affirmation of the Father? And Jesus there in John 17 says, I have accomplished the work which you gave me to do. His whole focus was pleasing God the Father. And so he first had sinless suffering, if you look at his life. He had submissive suffering, and then... This is where Jesus' suffering is different than ours. It is substitutionary suffering. Notice verse 24. 
He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. See, Jesus took the rap for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, there are a few things in your life, and I suspect, and also in mine, that really get under our skin. There is nothing more irritating than being blamed for something that you didn't do. Amen? I mean, it just, it, it's all over us. And yet the Lord Jesus was willing to bear the rap for your sin and for mine on the cross, and He did it, as Hebrews said, for the joy that was set before Him. See, he endured the cross. That is what substitutionary suffering is about. American history records that there was an Indian tribe that was losing chickens. And so the chief said that, well, that there was going to be 50. First of all, he said that there was going to be 10 lashes for the person who was the perpetrator who was caught. Well, then it kept on happening. So he moved it up to 50 lashes. And then they found out it was the chief's mother that was stealing chickens. So they wondered, was justice going to be served? And so eventually what happens is the chief gives the whip to his strongest brave. He has his mother tied to the post, the whipping post, and then the chief takes off his garments and he wraps his body around his mother and he takes the 50 lashes that she deserved. That is substitutionary suffering. That is taking the rap for your sin and mine as the Lord Jesus did on the cross. It's what Isaiah 53 speaks about when he says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes we are healed. And so the purpose of Jesus bearing our sin on the cross was that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. What was secured was a transformed life that should cause you and me to respond with gratitude for Jesus' love for us. And it should be the motive. See, we don't just simply want to please God to earn His favor. We already have it but we have gratitude that we want to live for Him for, because He died in our place. So looking at Jesus' life, we see sinless, submissive, and substitutionary suffering. See, the Gospel is the good news that suffering has a purpose and is meaningful. We may not understand, but look at the cross. The cross, the greatest place of suffering, became the place where all suffering finds meaning and purpose. So in the midst of suffering, look to Jesus' life, but also look to Jesus' cross. We see that in verses 18-21. through 21. Peter applies the gospel about suffering to our workplace. Notice verse 18, he says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. See, Christ's footsteps were seen in his, if you will, OJT, on-the-job training. His work, which he came to finish for the Father, was on-the-job training for us. 
And if we have embraced Christ as our God and Savior, there will be a transformation in our life. See, our life will demonstrate gratitude for what Jesus Christ has done for us. And how will that be seen? Well, first of all, in unconditional respect. We see that in verse 18. Peter mentions two kinds of masters, or what our 21st century would say, employers or supervisors. And some are good and considerate. Others are harsh and just. In other words, they're crooked. It's this word that speaks of curvature of the spine, a twisted backbone. See, we're not to respond to others according to how they have responded to us. I mean, we, we already encountered Romans 5.8, but God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, He has not treated us according to what we deserve. Who are we? Are we treating other people with what they deserve? Or are we giving them grace and mercy and kindness. See, we are not to respond to others according to the way they treated us. When Christ was insulted, He did not retaliate. When He suffered, He did not threaten. Jesus does not treat us according to what our sins deserve. And so, the gracious and merciful way to respond is first of all, unconditional respect. Everybody is made in the image of God. We need to treat them like that and how else will Christians, how else will an unbelieving secular culture know that Christians are different unless that is the way you and I respond? So the first thing we see by God's grace is that by gratitude, we are able to demonstrate unconditional respect. But a second thing is God consciousness. Notice verses 19. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure it? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is real freedom. Peter shows the way to freedom. We live moment by moment conscious of God. Our motive above and beyond everything else is to please God. If, if you even look at the, uh, this afternoon at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, it, it's interesting. We should, not, it, 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 we should be unconscious. Not worrying about what other people think about us. Not even worrying about what we think about ourselves, but entrusting ourselves to a faithful God. See, this is commendable, which is the word grace. God's grace becomes visible in our life when we patiently endure unjust suffering because our motives are pleasing to God. Jesus' motives was not controlled by how He was treated. See, we live to please, He lived to please the Father. Do we live to please the Father? And that's why Jesus was always free and a slave to no one. See, the Gospel, if you really understand it, destroys the institution of slavery by its very essence. So life in a sinful, broken world is filled with suffering, unjust suffering and suffering caused by the consequences of sin. And yet, we are told that the cross, which was the worst 
And the most unjust suffering the world has ever known was God's plan for us. And we saw that in the reading in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 2 it says, plainly when Peter preached at Pentecost, he says this, This man Jesus was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep hold of him. See, suffering is at the very heart of the gospel that has rescued you and me from the penalty and the power of sin. God suffered for us, and so this means whether we understand why we're suffering, that God has a purpose and it's meaningful. Many of you perhaps have either read the book The Hiding Place or have, um, have uh, seen the movie that was uh, about Corrie Ten Boom. But the Nazis had placed Corrie and her sister, uh, Betsy, in a prison because they had hidden Jews. And they were taken to Ravensbrück camp in Germany. And there the women would gather and there was 10,000 women in this camp. And they were kept in vice, uh, lice, uh, infested conditions, uh, utterly inhuman. And so, but they would gather one morning, always to have a Bible study. And Betsy was leading the Bible study. And then one woman mocked their faith in God and said, If your God is so good, why does He allow such suffering? And then... Dramatically, she tore the bandages off of her hands. And she said, I was a violinist in the orchestra. And she showed her mangled hands. And as you imagine, there was shocked silence. And then Corey stepped to her sister Betsy's side and she says, we can't answer why that question but all we know is that our God came to earth and became one of us, that He suffered for us and was crucified for us, and He did it because He loved us. You know, there's a lot of questions about suffering that you and I, this side of death, will never be able to answer. But what do we know? That the Lord of the universe loved us, came into a sinful, broken world, and was willing to suffer for us. And so ought we not also to be willing and joyful to suffer for Him who loved us and gave His life for us? And so therefore I would say to you, the good life will involve suffering. Do we have room for suffering is just a question. I pray that suffering does not come into your life or mine, but you know what? If it comes... Are we prepared by the gospel? Jesus' cross alone gives us the context of suffering. And it reminds us that, what, that suffering has meaning and purpose. Because Jesus Christ lived, died, and suffered for us. And he did it for the joy that was set before him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, that he 
came into this world, was born of a woman born under the law, and that he even suffered injustice in this world. And so, Father, we thank you that we have a mediator at your right hand, O Father, who understands our weaknesses, who understands what it is to live in a broken, sinful world. And, but, Father, we thank you that he set his face to go to Jerusalem to die, and that he did not shrink back because of his, the height and the depth and the breadth of his love for us. And so, Father, we would pray that you would prepare us uh, as you might bring suffering into our life, that you, that, and your intent is to conform us to the image of Christ, that we might love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so, Father... Grant us grace that we might love Christ and that we might so love him that we would extend grace to others even when they treat us unfairly and unjustly. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.